Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Hello everyone, my name is Ash. I am one of your co-ghosts here at Horror Vanguard. I am joined, as always, by the one, the only, at the Licorice guy. How's it going, John? I am, you know what? I'm I'm very excited. I've been I've been inside all day, and I think wouldn't it just be really nice to go on a nice long walk together? Oh, I, I, I think that's a, you know, I was thinking the same thing. So I happened to bring a several rolls of gauze and a messenger bag full of bolts. Oh, I mean, that's, that's, that's extremely important. Um, I decided not to bring the bomb that I was going to bring with me because I thought that, <laughs> I thought that might just get a bit weird. So um, I've, yeah. I've, I've, di- I've, I've disassembled that and have thrown it into some toxic sludge um, and I'm sure it'll be fine. I was I was gonna say we've been meaning to talk with you about this, but we all know that that's not a thermos. Um, most thermoses <laughs> don't have keypads on the top of them. Um, I didn't. Want, it seemed like you put a lot of work into it. I didn't want to rain on your parade, but we kind of knew something was up. Uh, okay, well, I appreciate you not bringing this up publicly, um, <laughs> and and maybe along the way we can we can talk a little bit about uh, Andre Tarkovsky's nineteen seventy nine. Uh, film stalker yes little little underground film uh the bfi said it was one of the best films of the 20th century so it's probably not a big deal it's Um, it's not like it has a criterion release and is widely recognized as as one of the pinnacles of film as an art form or anything nah it's fine um a little little underground picture you know for people who've who've not heard of tarkovsky and uh, um have, have maybe never seen stalker uh what's it about ash there are four commonly recognized characters that enter the zone in tarkovsky's stalker there is of course stalker and his two compatriots writer and professor but there is another a fourth it is you and i through the vehicle of the camera we are with stalker on his journey from our meeting in that withering bar to the bittersweet farewell from his wife Unlike stalker, writer, and professor, we enter the room. The camera slides back into the darkened crevice of the room as we stare back onto our trio. Even as we make our wish, we still see only our desire mediated through the other. Desire is never for the object of said desire. Porcupine shows us this lesson in no uncertain terms. As we enter the room, we face an anthropoid god and walk backwards into hell without knowing it. We are in the room and ever unaware of what lies within the shadowed corners of our own hearts. Our trio is afraid to share Porcupine's fate. However, the decision was made for us by the gaze of the camera. What is the gaze of the camera if not a hyper-object? It is something that has become so integrated into our culture and our history that it is no longer bound to spatial and temporal relations in the same way you and I are. The gaze of the camera shatters ironic distance and sticks so hard to our eyes that it becomes how we see. The camera's gaze can never be resisted. To recognize the gaze of the camera to the extent one can critique it is to have already participated in its manifestation. The hyper-object of the camera's gaze exists as a theory fiction which inscribes its ideology with the exact style that creates it. 
This hyperobject only manifests in specific instances of its arrival. We only ever see the interobjective imprint of this gaze. We see the ideological collisions with political theories like Marxism or its dialogue with formalism, but the thing itself is an object machine too large to ever be localized. Tarkovsky uses his interpretation of classic formalist camera movement to reintegrate the human into the object. Stalker, writer, and professor, and the viewer, through the camera's gaze, cease to be as distant from the broken down cars, decaying structures, and persistent grime as conventional thinking would have them be. Herein we restore the machine to the human, not in the way that reduces the anthropoid to something mechanistic, but in a way that reintegrates the machine into its status as a natural object. Hearts are pumps, and pumps are machines. This, in rhythm with Tarkovsky's film, frames our protagonists not as rote archetypes, but as material components in a greater system. There is no stalker without the zone. There is no faith without the test of the room. Each a gear that slots into the other and rejoins ever unto new combinations. The city of Tallinn and its surrounding environment pushes this further. Three people, including Tarkovsky himself, likely died, at least in part, due to their work on the film. The zone isn't just where the laws of physics break down. They're where our relationships to land break down. How does the poisoned earth of Stalker know us? How does the ground of Tallinn see Tarkovsky and his crew making a play of anthropogenic faith while a drift of toxic snow blankets the land. We muse over a detached sense of purpose while wading through the toxic cry we are trained not to hear. The zone is thought to be the aftermath of some great contact with alien civilization. Remnants of alien technology warp the very fabric of our contact with reality. The distortion of the zone is the transformation of the hyperobject of our ontologies. No matter how we see the world, the zone sees us back. We never learn the true nature of the alien technology, but I'm going to make a suggestion to you. The alien technology of the zone is Bogos alien phenomenology. Tarkovsky's stalker is the ontography and metamorphosis of alien phenomenology. Our criticism is its carpentry. You cannot beat the zone, only know it. Stalkers survive this eco-gothic terrain by building relationships with a land that is now alien to them. There is a snow falling over the zone, but it is not snow and the snow knows this before we do. Join us as we discuss Tarkovsky's Stalker. Ooh, yes. This is going to be a journey. Like any good walk, yes. Um, well, let us, let us then begin our journey. Let us set off... Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes the, 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 the shortest path is not always the shortest, right? Sometimes <laughs> it might seem like we are, we are um, doubling back on ourselves, dialectically reversed. But let us begin, as we always do, by entering the Formalism Zone. So where would you like to start? Let's... Let's talk about Andrei Tarkovsky, firstly. Maybe one of the great film directors of the Soviet Union, made, made their first five films in the Soviet Union, then made Nostalgia is 1983, which is in Italy, and The Sacrifice uh, from 1986 is made in Sweden. 
um, before and the sacrifice is the last film Tarkovsky makes before he uh, passes away from cancer, mm-hmm. uh, a, ca- a cancer which which it is widely regarded um, was caused by by experiences filming uh, Stalker. But what do, what do you think about Tar- Tarkovsky as a filmmaker? How would you how would you describe him kind of stylistically? I, I would just simply say this is one of the greatest formalist filmmakers of all time. Full full stop. Like the, the, every Tarkovsky movie is a masterclass in what you can do with the formalist elements of cinema. Like like Tark- Tarkovsky like is very minimalist in in so many respects, but it's it's this kind of master's touch with cinematic formalism. Um, one of the things that I, I you you can't discuss Stalker without bringing up on a formalist level is the amount of shots in this movie. Yeah, there's roughly, depending on how you count, 88 shots in the nearly three-hour runtime of Stalker. I think it's more like two and a half, but um, compare that to a uh, Marvel movie of a similar length, and there there might be over a thousand shots in a Marvel movie that's a similar length to Stalker. So Stalker is paced with this this kind of just just precision that is unheard of in kind of popular cinema. So a couple of things about Tarkovsky, which is that, um, yes, stylistically, definitely a formalist. The long, slow take, and we, we will talk about that in a second. Um, but also, in terms of content, Tarkovsky is like a metaphysician. Mm-hmm. His, his films tend to be very serious, um, often philosophical, if not outright religious um, in nature. Um, but there's always this kind of attempt to ground things in a very kind of human experience. Um, well, well, let's you, you brought this up, so why don't we kind of talk about the, these formal elements of films? Um, how, like, what do you think about this? something like the, the the use of long takes in this, the the incredibly small number of shots, the framing of shots? Um, yeah, what are your thoughts? Well, I think this is kind of super important to Stalker as a thing in and of itself, right? Stalker is a meditation and that extends into how the camera sees things. You know, there, there's um there's, there's a sense to, of liminality to how this is framed, right? We are always on the edge of rooms looking in at Stalker and other characters doing things. There's only a handful of times where we're in the room with people. And this includes when we're outdoors. You know, Tarkovsky goes out of his way to to stick the camera in every abandoned car and crevice just to make it constantly like we're peering into the world of this trio. And and that framing to me is just like it may this is this is horribly trite, but it made me think about those like viral tweets you see every now and then where it's like name a better shot in cinema, and then it's some like CGI soup from Avengers Endgame where it's like tonally gray and there's a bunch of heroes in the same costume that have been cloned with CG. And then they're yeah. like, oh, that's the, yeah, the yeah. best shot that's ever been done. And then I'm just like, I'm just thinking of Tarkovsky parking that camera at the doorway of some dingy bar in Estonia. And I'm like, that is that is an infinitely superior shot that, that speaks volumes about what's happening. Like he's so intelligently using... The, the kind of like grid of the frame to, to add meaning to this. And it's just, y- you can't get enough of the cinematography in Stalker. And the take, the takes are so long. 
like the camera does not cut away right there mm-hmm. um like some of my favorite shots in this are just incredibly patient long slow zooms in mm-hmm. and then then the camera will maybe kind of like bank about to the left or the right and then we'll zoom out and retreat and it is like people people kind of like make a big deal out of long shots now um or wanners and it's like i get why because we've been conditioned into a kind of like hyperactivity of cinematography um mm-hmm. where like if a shot goes over five seconds the concern is the audience will get bored um but tarkovsky uh the whole point is to get you to adjust your expectations of what time means watching one of his films right if a shot is like a minute you'd be like whoa that was fast (laughs) (laughs) um like nostalgia has an incredible shot of a man walking uh, a candle across a swimming pool a, a, a dried out swimming pool and it lasts nine minutes and it becomes this incredibly like it, it, it just sort of hypnotizes you the way that he uses time. He actually wrote a book about film theory and time, mm-hmm. um, which is incredibly interesting because really it's the manipulation of time that he argued that, that film was unique in terms of its art. You know, the, the fact that you can go begin here and stop here is something that we've never yeah. been able to do, to, to do before we could do visual moving images. Um, and yeah, it doesn't like Stalker doesn't feel slow, even though it's a long movie. It is a long, deeply weird, very glacial, glacial movie, but it doesn't feel slow and it doesn't feel boring. And it's all to do with the fact that like time, time kind of like changes watching a Tarkovsky film. Perhaps a hot take here, but this is anti-capitalist, you know, like that, that frantic flickering pace of contemporary popular cinema reflects a understanding of time that flows directly from capitalism right you know we we live in a very frantic society things have to keep moving there's no such thing as a break anymore you're expected to work your side hustle on your days off you know when when you when you clock out of the factory you clock in as an uber driver right like there there is no stopping anymore and our cinema reflects that Um, Tarkovsky's movies are the rare gift of a truly lazy afternoon where you don't have to work you don't have to do these like capitalistic upkeep tasks that are constantly like dogging the working people of this world and there's something about just watching Stalker and crew wander around the wasteland of like decaying industrial Estonia that makes me wish that I had more free time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause I would also be neck deep in toxic slurry. That's what I would be doing with my free time. Uh, my favorite detail about the film, uh, in regards to what you've just said is that, um, the, the state committee for cin- for cinematography told Tarkovsky that the film, uh, especially at the beginning should be faster and a bit more dynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he responded that the film needs to be slower and duller at the start so that the viewers who walked into the wrong theater have time to leave before the main action starts. And I'm like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Hell yeah. See, and see, that is how you do it too. Like I love, um, like, like Tar- Tarkovsky, you know, all artists have to make concessions and they work with what they do. You know, the reason Tarkovsky left the Soviet Union is because he couldn't make the art he wanted to make there anymore. 
Um, so he, he like, like there's a lot of filmmakers and artists that did kind of a voluntary exile from the late Soviet Union for those similar reasons. And I, I love Tarkovsky's commitment to, to kind of like making his weirdo art without flinching. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it is, it, 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 it's such a rewarding experience, right? It's, there's, there's actually one other kind of formal aspect to this film that I really want to talk about, which is the, the incredible moment where the film transitions to color. Yes, yes, yes. Should we talk about like the color and the, the, the film processing for a second? Yeah, like Tar- Tarkovsky literally invented his own kind of film processing to make the movie the way he did with this extra long processing vat that could be different temperatures at different sections in order to process the film the way he needed to. And, and like just just chef's kiss to, to that dedication to formalism, to, to going into the nuts and bolts of the film itself and, and, and re-engineering it to get your artistic effect completed. Mm. What do you make it's- of the transition from sepia tone to color? Well, it's it's a genuine shock, right? And it's precisely because the film is so deliberately paced, because it's so slow, that just as you've kind of acclimated to what's going on, and like uh, we sort of gloss over this, but there's a there is like a massive armed chase sequence. Yes, like yes, pe- yes. Pe- pe- people are trying, like, uh, and I uh, watching it, I was sort of like, I really, I like, I love the idea of Tarkovsky doing like a Mission Impossible film. And what that would look like, um, but the 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 cut where we where we move from the sepia to the color is is one. It it's an incredibly effective way of kind of establishing the zone as essentially a kind of alien place, and and two genuinely is a shock based on on how the film has kind of acclimated you as a viewer to its world. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. I, I love I love the fact that the only action scene in this entire movie, uh, barring the fight you know, outside of the room, is is the kind of like Ocean's Eleven spy movie with a shootout that happens in the sepia tone pre-zone beginning. I, I I really love that kind of denial. You know, you you okay? Here's your action sequence, but it's sepia tone. And it's and it's situated in kind of like this plotless beginning of the movie where these guys are just kind of like you, you never know why Stalker is making the decisions that he's making. You know, yeah. they, they they have to they have to drive this old military jeep through some kind of decaying industrial pseudo military area and then like sneak around a moving train that's transporting power equipment and then steal a little rail car. It's very, it's very convoluted and it's very like circuitously paced, and I love sneaking the action scene into that. Yes, I think it's, I think it's so much fun. Um, we we have kind of danced around this a little bit, but like, should we talk about the fact that this movie may, might have killed three people? Yes, we we do need to talk about the fact that Tarkovsky's stalker has a body count. Um, yeah, Dear Diary, my my uh, late Soviet cinema bullshit has a body count is, is kind <laughs> of the mantra here. So th- this was filmed in Tallinn in the late 70s in Estonia um, outside of two abandoned hydroelectric power plants. And there were active factories in the area. And spoiler alert, Estonia in the late 70s, not particularly known for its commitment to environmental policy. 
Um, so these these factories were literally just pumping chemical runoff into the water all day. And like whenever whenever you see water in this movie that's got like a foam on it or it's bubbling weird, that's because it's full of poison. Um, it's not it's not just a, a fresh flowing stream that they're sleeping on. It's literally like a sluice way from a factory. Um, and, and when they're when they're wading neck deep in filth, that's not a set. That's neck deep in filth. Um, yeah, the, there's there's a scene where it is um, supposed to be snowing, but that's not snow. That's that's falling. No, no, that's not snow. Uh, that's chemical byproduct from a nearby factory. Um, th- there's a bunch of scenes where there's like foam on the river. That's that's not some kind of like natural naturally occurring spoogem or something. That is like toxic runoff. Um, and. Tarkovsky died of a very specific kind of throat cancer that also killed two people who worked with him on this movie. Um, and sure, there's no way to prove this definitively, but it's widely speculated that the participating in this movie is what killed them all. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, which is uh, desperately sad and also makes watching this a very sort of kind of haunting experience. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it becomes, this movie is darkly metatextual in so many ways. So many ways that Tarkovsky couldn't have even intended. And this is one of them. You know, the zone leaves a permanent imprint on anyone who visits it. To, to the point where in the movie it's discussed that visiting the zone will, will even somehow change your children. You know, a, a much like sufficient nuclear radiation would do the same. Um and visiting the zone changed the lives of everyone who participated in this movie. Um, well, we should probably raise something before we exit the formalism zone, which is let's do it. When I said on, when I said on 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 Twitter that that we were going to do that, I I I like to kind of occasionally just drop a little teaser, and you know, uh, tweet something with a frame of the film that we're talking about. And when a couple of people realized we were talking about Stalker. Lots of people very excited about it, but a couple of people were like, huh, it's a bit weird that you're talking about this film in a horror movie podcast. Um, and and I was like, you know, we say we say sort of not really jokingly that every movie is a horror movie, but maybe it's worth kind of unpacking that question a bit. Is this a horror movie? And yes. if so, what kind of horror? <laughs> are, <laughs> what kind of horror are we dealing with? <laughs> This un- un- unflinching yes meme to is is stalker a horror movie yes um yes <laughs> well well uh everyone out there all, all you wonderful listeners and ghouls welcome to the hv grind set um the, this is so what we have here and, and and allow me allow me a moment to pontificate um but but this is a theory fiction for horror cinema right all movies are horror movies every last one and this is not because they meet some arbitrary taxonomic uh, qualities. We're not counting ghosts or weighing the impact of jump scares. All movies are horror movies because we say they are. This is a gothic Marxist theory fiction of generic taxonomy. We are using the framework of gothic, of horror, to reveal things about cinema, to discuss things about cinema. We are imposing horror and evoking horror. You know, we are, we are seeing the world through spooky colored glasses. What are your thoughts? Yes, yes, it is a horror movie. 
the idea of excluding it from being a horror movie uh, will, I hope, get increasingly strange as we unpack all of the reasons why it is. Um, it No, it doesn't have ghosts and it doesn't have um, monsters or slasher killers. But really, we've always said that horror is not simply about its kind of aesthetic or generic markers, which are quite often, if not always, tools of marketing, you know, tools of capitalist accumulation. How to make a film profitable depends upon it kind of, you know, parroting off the relevant tropes and, and stylistic gestures that we've come to expect. But horror, genuine horror, is a kind of epistemological and philosophical as well as political space. Yeah. And it is mm-hmm. and it is that, it is that which Stalker is so deeply engaged with. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would just add to that that it's also it, it's a it's a willful selection of an ontological framework. You know, we we're Gothic Marxists. This is how we're interpreting cinema. We could do uh, a Power Rangers movie. We could do literally anything. Spin the wheel. A movie I've really wanted to talk about for a long time, and maybe we'll do it one day, is um, Michael Snow's Wavelength, um, which is a 45-minute unbroken slow zoom. And it is 100% gothic. It is horror uh, because this is the framework we select. And you could do this with other frameworks, sure, but we're spooky AF, so that's how we do. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, and I think it is worth saying that, like, you know, it has become a bit of an HV meme that all films are horror films, but like, we're also completely serious about that. Yes, one hundred percent. Just yes, yes, it is that. It, that is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, speaking speaking of the theory fiction that is the HV grind set. You can support this show and help us prove that every single movie that has ever been released is in fact gothic and horror by supporting us on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorvanguard. You'll get early access to episodes, some random spooky nonsense along the way, and the satisfaction of knowing that you are personally bankrolling the spookiest, the most gothic interpretations of utter nonsense that have ever been created. Yes! Patreon uh, plug complete. Will we ever, you know, will we ever stop plugging our Patreon? No. Will we ever get better at doing good Patreon plugs? Also, no. <laughs> oh, ab- absolutely not. Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> well, given given that we are talking about a a a, a gothic horror film, um, let us begin by talking about the zone. Let us let us enter the eco gothic zone. Um, and I think we probably should talk about environment, environmentalism as well, yes, right? This is absolutely. a film that, that is deeply uh, interested in exploring the uh, kind of resonances of landscape when they've been e- emptied of life, right? When the dog, when the dog appears uh, towards the end of the film, it's a, it's a big kind of break because suddenly there's, there's a kind of another sort of life present when it has just been us and these these three men falling into pools of toxic waste for an hour and a half <laughs> um, but what do you think about what do you think about the, this this the zone is a kind of eco gothic space I, I really like the zone as eco gothic because the zone is one of the strongest examples of land with agency 
in in just all of cinema full stop like the zone is alive and the zone is actively doing things uh, we can't understand the zone's machinations uh, because we don't have a framework for connecting with the zone right like even the stalker who wants to, who, whose entire job is is predicated on knowing the zone and being able to understand its movements and subtleties even for him the zone is this alien force right it's it's a it's a swaying in the breeze that can sometimes kill you with a mystery trap but i think that this speaks to us about the very land that we stand on and our relationship to it and knowing it right tarkovsky and the people who made this movie did not know estonia right because knowing estonia to them was impossible they they probably had no way of knowing that all of that sluice way runoff they were neck deep in for the entire movie was going to kill them, you know, a decade later. Um, and that resonates with our lives, right? Like from, from one sense of this, right? Like if you're living on a, a colonial landscape, right? Like the real history of that land is lost. Um, and when I say lost, I mean intentionally obscured by colonialism, not lost in the sense that it's gone forever. Um, you know, like Columbus Day just passed here in the States and like Columbus was a murderous, you know, genocide monster. Um, but the hagiography hey, in this country, all oh, the statues to Columbus, founding this nation, discovering things, uh, that's kind of like a false consciousness, you know, and in, in, in a way and in that sense, the zone is everywhere. Yeah. And actually, there's something there's something really interesting about the way that this film manages to give landscape a kind of non-human agency yes 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 <laughs> um and i've been thinking i've been thinking about this this a lot which is like the the stalker kind of embodies this um mark fisher fisherian dynamic between the weird and the eerie really well it mm -hmm. is an eerie it's an eerie landscape right there's an absence there's there's something kind of ontologically missing, but there is also a kind of weird potentiality that runs through it as well. Um, and it, it makes it, there's a, there's a great shot where it seems like the la the ground is kind of like wavy mm -hmm. and it's all, and it's like, it's sort of kind of phasing in and out of, of a kind of concrete existence. And so you, you like by looking at the landscape, by looking at any landscape, if you look carefully enough, what happens to you is you get reminded of the limitations of, of human subjectivity, right? The very yes. smallness yes. Uh, of our conception of space. Hell yes. And I think this is such a wonderful blending of Fisher's weird and the eerie as it applies to this landscape and like an object-oriented ontology view of this land, right? Like what is the, how, how does the land perceive stalker in this trio? What does this toxic snow have as it's kind of like internal machinations And that in and of itself is really weird and very eerie. Well, uh, given that you brought it up, we should probably, we should probably kind of complicate this a little bit further, right? Hell yes. Um, as you, as you pointed out, they are existing not just this is not a film about nature right no. this is the zone is not kind of nature in a sort of like untouched state but like they film this at like abandoned hydroelectric plants like some some cosmic force has reshaped the very earth there is a kind of they're surrounded by industrial runoff and like waste and and toxic ash that falls from the sky like this is this is a film 
that is kind of deeply enmeshed in kind of bigger issues about Soviet industrialization, uh, the the attempts to sort of, um, you know, generate enough to make a to make a Soviet republic self sustaining. Like there's so much of the industrial in this as well. Yeah, yeah, and I mean like. One of the big influences for this movie are gulags, right? Like, like the aesthetic of the gulag is all over Stalker. You know, it, it is it is a powerful imprint that exists on this film. And I, I think like, and you wrote this in the notes and it made me so happy that you put this there and I didn't have to, but this is, we could talk about psychogeography here, right? Like in, in, in like detached psychogeography from specific locations even, right? Like, Tarkovsky is deeply soaked in this cultural knowledge of the gulag and that reinforms the space of the zone and how we move through the zone and how this film moves. It's got that very decidedly Soviet, slow, deliberate, melancholic motion to it that we see in like so much like Soviet and post-Soviet writing about the gulag. And that ties also into what you were just talking about with the Soviet industrialization Right. Like, and we have the same kind of like, I don't want to say post-industrial, but we have this like industrial decline, you know, that, that reconnects it to me. Like, like this 1979's Tallinn reminds me of everywhere I grew up in the Rust Belt. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're like, this is not just, this is not just a kind of eco Gothic. This is a industrial Gothic. Mm -hmm. um, and it's about what happens when those two things kind of collide Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, one hundred percent. Do you do you want to dig into that? Do you want to talk about the uh, eco gothic and discourse a little on environmentalism? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. So I, I want I want to talk about the ideological work of the cinematic gaze for a second. Okay. Uh, so when we talk about filmic gaze, we typically talk about the male gaze because the camera does, you know, nine out of 10 times have this cisgendered heterosexual, heterosexual patriarchal gaze to it. Um, horribly enough, Trent, the first Transformers movie is a wonderful example of this terrible thing. But we have something interesting going on in the Tarkovsky movie here. It's not necessarily resisting or attempting to not do that. But what I find really interesting is how the gaze has a relationship to the land and the eco-gothic. Um, when we think about a nature documentary, right, from like National Geographic or the BBC or something like that, uh, the kind of modern way of doing a nature, nature documentary is, is sweeping vistas, beautiful landscapes, uh, miked in sounds that, that make you feel like your ear is right next to the, the prowling tigers and the bubbling brooks and all that stuff. Uh, Tarkovsky is like unseating that. Like, like this is, this is a nature documentary of the zone. You know, the stalk, the stalker is kind of a half crazed David Attenborough guiding us through the zone. And the way the camera views nature right especially with that shot that you mentioned with with like that wavy sequence or the way it's like always like focusing on grime or like giving us like black and white shots of what should be like this is black and white shot of a slug crawling on some moss in a stream and it takes you a second to to see what's even in frame because it's black and white and black and white emphasizes shape um and line more than it does color 
right? So it's this complete deseeding of how we look at nature in cinema. And the sound, the soundscape goes with this as well, right? When they're first riding into the zone, it's this steady clickety clack of the rail car going down the line. It reminds me so much of sister, like, like a Sisters of Mercy song. It's this oh, yeah, industrial yeah. gothic, you know, tune. And it becomes noise rock by the end, right? By the time we enter nature, it's not the mic'd in finches in the bush and, and the, the wind going through the wheat, kind of thing it's it's this like decaying industrial noise scape that winds up defining most of this movie yes and i think it's i i actually think that um the stabilization of the presentation of nature is super important um because the whole point is uh you know what does that classic cinematic gaze do right it places mm-hmm. you lit- literally above the world it makes you into a god yeah right you know, you watch a you watch an incredible drone shot in like eight K of 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 some um, pristine vista, and it's like you you are above the world. You are distinctly separate from the world. But like we know that that distinction between like it's the very old distinction, right, between nature and culture, is is completely erased here, right? We are we are we are in the earth. Mm-hmm. We are we as are it the, should be. Mm-hmm. We're, we're in the stream. We're so close to things that we can barely even make out their shape. Like we can barely, often the, the sound mixing, uh, the sound and image don't match. So you experience this kind of like disjunction of thoughts. And it's like you are placed into the into the natural world, right? You are placed into what Jason, uh, Jason W. Moore calls the web of life. Yeah. Rather than this kind of like, abstracted and often very capitalist idea of having a kind of view of nature as an asset you are you are enmeshed in nature in this film like water flows over you like moss would end up growing over your skin like you become part of the world instead of above it absolutely i think you're 100 right with that this this restores us to the natural those abandoned hydroelectrical uh power plants are natural they're part of nature. They're they're ensconced in nature. No, nothing humans can do escapes the natural. We are the natural, right? Uh, it's, it's part part of the trick of capitalism is seeing ourselves separate, seeing seeing the earth as something that we can puppet, rather than seeing the earth as a connection to ourselves. And and stalker, like the, the for as subtle and slow and intentional of a movie this is, the the camera can get really aggressive. The, the camera is shoving your face in, into all of the grime and sludge. That It's a very gooey movie, and the camera wants you to sit in that. Um, and, and it's such, it's such so good to compare this to, to a BBC nature documentary with those like drone shots that, that fly over the, the savannah or whatever. And, and I was thinking when I was watching this about like, uh, like like the, the the shots in nature documentaries where you see like some lions fighting over a zebra or something, and it's like a shot that like no human could ever get. You know, you couldn't just walk up to a bunch of lions while they're chowing down because then you'd be lion food because you're just a tall primate to them. And so like it, it's a trick, right? It shows your mastery over nature. It's like yes. I'm the Lord of this thing. I can stand next to these feasting lions with zero fear. That's the gaze of that camera. It's showing you something impossible from the perspective of a dominating force. Whereas this, like you're on par with this cursed landscape. 
you're you're right there in the sludge and the slime with the snails. You're sleeping in the stream with Stalker and Ryder. Uh, yes, absolutely. You know, you you don't have that the the kind of arrogance. You know, Stalker says repeatedly, the zone has to be respected, mm-hmm. right? Because otherwise, you it'll kill you. So instead of thinking that this is a space that the camera can master, you realize that actually, even with the omnipotence of the camera, you're so incredibly vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. You never, you never feel safe with how Tarkovsky frames shots in Stalker. Um, he loves, he loves position. So uh, when we talk about the frame of, of a camera, and this works for movies and photography and painting and kind of anything that has this frame to it. Um, we often talk about thirds. So if you can imagine just kind of like a rectangle, there are three lines going across and three lines going um, from top to bottom that divide it into a bunch of equal sized squares. Um, and each kind of third is called a third. Uh, Tarkovsky loves hanging things on the far left third or the far right third. Yep. Giving giving this this entire movie a sense of like just dramatic instability. Things are always hanging on edge. Yes. Yeah. And the kind of the kind of negative space in the middle of the frame becomes this sort of almost unbridgeable void. And of course, um, arranging a frame that way allows for a visual representation of character antagonisms. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not just about what your characters are saying to each other. It's about where they're placed within the kind of very static shots that you have. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, would you would you like to talk about Chernobyl? Well, I think we should very quickly touch on this, right? Because um, obviously, in the aftermath of the of the Chernobyl disaster at the nuclear power plant, um, people who were stationed around there um, as guides and to keep people out of the irradiated land started referring to themselves as stalkers. Um, and one of the very final shots of the film. Um, you can see a giant power plant in the background. Yeah, and there's a sort of there's a kind of like uh, 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 an Ernst Blockian point that we can make here, which is that the meaning of culture is is always um, is determined by the work itself, but is also um, open to the reinterpretation not just of humans but of history. So, like culture can become something else based on externalities of historical progression. So, like. Watching this in a post-1989 uh, world, post-Chernobyl, post post-fall of the Soviet Union, you can't help but pick up on that resonance, right? And even though oh, yeah. there's a kind of te- temporal problem, right? The film came first, Chernobyl came afterwards. The fact that those two things are um, like in dialogue means that the film itself becomes something else now. Oh yeah, uh, strict temporal causality is out, baby. This is the speculative realism zone here. Time, time is a soupy <laughs> fluid. It's an open flat sea, baby. Um, and I think you're totally right. Like, and and part of what Stalker captures is is the necessary cultural precursors for um, Chernobyl, right? Because prior to the recording of Stalker, there were um, nuclear power plant failures in the Soviet Union. Nothing nearly as dramatic as Chernobyl, of course, but Tarkovsky knew this, right? Like, like the ecological degradation happening outside of Tallinn was happening in the movie and to the people in the movie. 
right? So, so this was happening during the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, so all, all of these kind of machinations the, the movie is a part of, right? It's speaking to everything that's going to lead up to the final fall of the USSR and then Chernobyl. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all there. It's all there, right? But like, maybe it's, maybe it's worth kind of confronting the question then. You know, what happened to the zone? Does it, does it even matter? Does it matter what happened to the zone? Ooh, I think, I think this, this is uh, incredibly interesting um, because I think it'll lead us to a conversation of like what's in the zone and where the zone even is. Like what, what is the geolocality of the zone? What are your thoughts? So what's, well, <laughs> uh, my take is no, it doesn't matter um, because the film is not really about the event itself. Um, the film is about the aftermath of any kind of great trauma. You know, they, they talk about it as like, it could have been a war. It could have been, it could have been aliens. It could have been a meteorite, mm -hmm. but, but really that's not what the film is about. The film is about what happens when, when the outside breaks in, as it were, right? What happens when concrete, quote unquote normal the normal world becomes shattered you know and what kind of human subjectivity can can survive that so really uh if somebody goes like well does what really happened it's like i don't care like the event itself is not the important thing here you're you're absolutely correct and i think that this speaks to kind of like the the, the humans as machine objects <laughs> inside of stalker and what i mean by this is that like you you I and everyone listening is not a discrete individual object, right? We are irrevocably interlinked to greater systems around us. Our friends, our family are, are clear examples of that. What happens to them also happens to us by proxy. But we're also linked in with other systems. You know, we're linked into these environmental systems, right? We're linked into tons of material systems driven by physical objects that are around us constantly, and, and part of what's going on in the zone is the zone isn't some external place. The, the zone is inside everyone, right? You, you can see this literally when a poison snow falls on the cast and crew of this film. But then it's also the people outside of the zone have the zone inside of them. And we'll, we'll talk about uh, children of the zone later. Um, but like even, even people who aren't directly children of stalkers in the zone... The, the, the zone radiates outward, right? It, it intersects with the culture around it. It becomes part of this larger mechanistic work. Yes. You know, it, it is the zone a concrete physical space? Yes, but is it just that? No. <laughs> right? And, and that's, that's, yeah. that's the kind of the, the, the nature of... This is what I mean when I talk about kind of horror as like a, uh, as a kind of like... Um, ethical or moral space as well. Um, Richard Gilman Opalski is really good on this in Spectres of Revolt, where he talks about how places can be haunted, um, but also that haunting goes with you because ha haunting haunting is in effect another word for memory, although not every single memory memory is a haunting, right? So there might be places which are attached to incredibly intense. Uh, even painful or traumatizing memories, but those memories are not geographically restricted, right? They can come with you. 
So like the zone is the zone is a place, right? But it, the zone is also not dependent on geography. Oh, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. And the, the, the zone functions on a symbolic level so powerfully and so clearly because just like John Smith's The Black Tower, there are zones everywhere. You know, you know, there are so many zones near us and zones in our neighborhood and we walk through zones every day. We live in zones. And the thing about a zone is that the thing about the zone is that you don't really know what you're in while you're in it. And this extends, again, metatextually to the film. They did not know they were in a horrendously carcinogenic, poisonous soup the entire time they made this film. Yeah. Likewise, like, I I used to live uh, maybe 20 miles from a coal processing plant. And there was more radiation in the air of, of outside of, like, where I lived than there would have been if I lived literally inside the cooling tower of a, of a, radi- of a nuclear power plant, right? Like, like the radiation levels are, are shocking. Uh, pr- that's what is produced by coal power, you know, is not safe. <laughs> but yeah. like, I, I found that out 20 some odd years after living in the shadow of the damn thing. You know, like that's my entire life. That's like a, a chunk of my life spent living in a zone I didn't recognize. And this process is eternal. Yeah. And and his and here is maybe the kind of strange thing about watching the film now, right? It's a process that might accelerate. It's mm-hmm. a process that might get that 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 has the potential to get worse. You know, if if the extractive um kind of endless pursuit of profit continues, if 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 the choice is socialism or barbarism as it as it has been for a long time now the then what we are faced with is a uh, a proliferation of those zones which will become so quote unquote normal that we won't recognize them at all because that's just what life will become you're you're 100% correct because ju- just like you, you know again speculative realistic flow of logic here it, it's already happened you know, this this thing that we're prophesizing in the current moment has already happened to us. You know, our entire world around us is designed not for the people who live in it, but for the ideological apparatus of extractive capitalism. And that's it. It's not even designed for the billionaires that are extracting. It's designed for this kind of vague notion of a system. Capitalism in and of itself is a zone that encompasses the entire world. And part of its kind of ideological function is to make us unable to see it much like when you're Uh, much like oh oh, go on go on yeah absolutely you know this this idea that as soon as you might think you've recognized what it is you're looking at you know it's changed it's morphed the Mm -hmm. the landscape has the landscape has shifted out of perceptual reality yes yes absolutely uh so do we want to do we want to start talking about desire Yes, absolutely. We we totally should because this is the whole point, right? Uh, the reason the reason writer and professor are heading towards the zone is that there is le- legend has it that there is a room in which uh, dreams come true. Whatever you want, you can get. You go you go into the room in the in the heart of the zone, and you will you will get the kind of deepest desire of your heart. Um. The writer says that uh, they're looking for inspiration, 
but of course, both of them are on kind of quite different. It turns out in the course of their journey that they don't really know what they're looking for. Um, and essentially, in my reading of it, this film is um, a kind of literalizing on one level of, of the very Zizekian point that we do not know ourselves and yes. we certainly do, don't know what we want. Um, there is, Zizek kind of works out this idea of the of kind of ontological incompleteness uh, and that happens at the at the quantum level in physics, but it happens on the psychological level with the with as he puts it the barred subject. There is there are bits within ourselves that we don't know, we don't understand, and we can't really access. So to say that you know what it is that you truly want is kind of self deceiving because our own desires constantly slip out beyond our own grasp. Which is exactly what happens in the course of the film, right? So what you're saying to me is that, because I'm actually recording outside of the room right now. I, I was about to go step inside because I thought I would walk in there <laughs> and I would get new supporters on patreon.com forward slash horror vanguard if I stepped into the room because that's my my true desire in my heart. So smooth. But that's the, Buttery that's, smooth. That's, that is the, that's the awful thing, right? What if you... You think you want one thing, but uh, you uh, you you get so, you get given something else because you did not know what your own desires really were. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. And, and our our desires, right? They're 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 constructed. And when I when I say constructed, I don't mean to reduce our desires to to something. Uh, uh, so crass and trite is like a product, right? It's not a box of cereal, but it is built. And, and part of the construction of our desires is mediated through the other, right? Right Through other people, through other things. And, and just in the same way that like, if you love someone and, and you, you marry them and you spend decades with them and, and you know each other through and through, there's still going to be pockets of their internality that you will never know. Right, like truly knowing the other is an impossible feat. And, and this extends to other systems, right? Other objects, right? When we see ourselves as objects and we return to kind of this natural plane, we see that all around us and our desire is partly constructed by that. There's so much that we're not aware of that's shaping it. Entering the room is an incredibly risky prospect. Yes, it's desperately dangerous, right? Desperately dangerous. Um... And what makes this film so interesting, right? I, I use this quote from Zizek all the time, which is like, the cinema is the pervert art, right? It doesn't doesn't tell you what to desire, but shows you how to uh, engage with desire. Um, but this film doesn't do that either. What this film does is basically reflect back a kind of like working through of our own fundamental ontological incompleteness. Totally. I, I think that is 100% the, the nail on the head. So, so do you want to talk about the, the kind of ethics of entering the room? Well, this is, the, this is the super interesting conflict, right? You don't know what you would really get because we do not yet know ourselves. And the whole point is not to say that our, our like from a psychoanalytic point of view, the whole, the whole point is not that um, oh, you shouldn't want certain things. The whole point is to actually get someone to admit 
the truth of what they, what it is that they really want beneath their apparent desire. You know, you want A, but really that's tied up in B, C, and D. And so, uh, what do you think? Do you, what do you think about this idea of like, is it not more ethical to kind of like have the struggle with desire that happens outside of the room? Like one of them almost falls in and the others kind of drag him back out. And it's like, it, it's it's literally a dramatization of psychoanalysis in action. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, I think the professor here is a really interesting character to to discourse about. Um, the professor uh, goes goes on the trip to the zone um, under under a ruse. He lies. He says he's going there to study it, and he's brought a bunch of scientific instruments with him in his bag, and he's gonna he's gonna research and measure the zone, and he's gonna win the Nobel Prize. You know, he, he's he's going there for research purposes. It's a lie. He's got a, he's got a twenty megaton bomb in his backpack. He's going to destroy the zone because if the zone ever fell into like evil hands. It could be disastrous for humanity. What would happen to the zone if like a fascist used it? But ultimately, when he reaches the room, like his kind of conclusion is that it's it's impossible for anyone to abuse the room. But because our because the room grants your deepest desire, right? And and kind of by definition, whatever your deepest desire is, is something you can never know the answer to. That that thing that's truly at the core of you is constantly being informed by and changed by every new encounter you have right it's 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 shifting in its symbolic relation to like the greater machinery of your life and so the professor realizes there's no point to destroy it because even if the world's most evil person walked into the room who knows what the gift they might get right it might make the the memory of their fifth birthday party a happy one or something right like there's no way of telling what the zone will ever do well, we should probably talk about how we know this, right? Where there is a character who has entered the room, uh, the room, and has gotten apparently what they what they always wanted, and the very next day they end up killing themselves. Um, and what do you what do you think about that? What do you think about the character of Porcupine? So I, th- I think Porcupine is really interesting. So Porcupine is a character we never meet. Um, uh, Porcupine was the original stalker who trained our stalker. Um, Porcupine, uh, it's it's uh, it has become an accepted rule that stalkers do not enter the room. Um, and part of that descends from what happened to Porcupine. He entered the room uh, wanting to bring his brother back to life. However, the room gave him just a truckload of money instead because it turns out that the desire deep in his heart was for money and not actually to bring his brother back. And that realization was so destabling for him. He took his own life. And I think that is really challenging because that is a very direct and a very dark confrontation with the, the kind of mysterious and shadowy nature of our own desire. But it's also a scathing condemnation of our society because money is, is the purest example of this kind of Zizekian understanding of desire, right? Um, because n- nobody just wants money. Right. People want things that money does, uh, whether yep. that whether that's, um, you know, like I would like some money because I would love to like buy a house and get health care and all that stuff. Right. I don't want I don't want these green sheets of paper, you know, or, or a Bitcoin ticker. Right. I, I want the things that money represents. Um, and so we never really find out 
what you know like stalkers don't seem to be very well off they seem to be barely getting by it's safe to assume that porcupine had plenty of problems that could have been solved by a truckload of cash and you know at the end of the day what kills porcupine it's it's these material needs it's an unjust societal system that is not valuing porcupine's rights as a human and actually this spirals out a layer further which is that um because of that system we do not actually recognize our own desires when we encounter them you know, because because he gets the money, right? He's, so he's rich now because he has all of these material needs and problems. But he's not able to make that causal leap, right? He goes, oh, I've got all this money. That means secretly I'm a terrible person. Mm-hmm. So it's like even... And it's precisely because we have such material needs that we are... Like, uh, the, the, the image of the bard subject is super useful from Lacanian psychoanalysis, right? The, the S with the with a line through it, right? We do not even recognize ourselves when seen through the eyes of the external other. We don't even recognize or understand our own desires. And so, like, subjective annihilation seems to be the only way out of it. Totally. Uh, uh, Absolutely. And this movie is, again, really aggressive about that. There are so many times where Stalker... Um, or other characters, Stalker's wife, they, they will stop and just stop the movie and talk directly to you, the viewer. You know, they, they will speak through the gaze of the camera directly into you. And and it is it is so jarring in, in this kind of... Because it, it's not like fourth wall breaks are, are trite today because they're only ever used for gags. You know, for for these Deadpool level jokes, but to have a character break the fourth wall, stare you down, and talk about their often pained relationship with their husband, whose entire career is navigating a place where the laws of physics broke down um, in the fall of the Soviet Union, like that is a crushingly personal connection to make out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, which brings up the kind of like a sort of bigger problem, which is like, this is, this is a film that's very interested in like, how do you make sense of existence and existence when it, when it can seem so strange and arbitrary and unfair, right? So the professor and the writer have these kind of like differing models of epistemology uh, and it's sort of, if you were to reduce it very, very kind of like uh, a, a little bit, re- if I was to be a bit reductive, I would say it's like a sort of scientific positivism versus like an aesthetic or artistic inspiration as their various theories of knowledge. But both of them are revealed to kind of be insufficient to really get anywhere useful. Um, what do you think about that? So I, I think the kind of, because there's a lot of talk about the archetypical nature of Stalker, right? Like none of our characters have, have names. They're, they're symbols. There's Stalker, there's Writer, there's Professor, right? There's Porcupine. You know, everybody is kind of transferred into these symbolic entities rather than being just themselves or things in and of themselves. Um, but I think like 
these archetypes are then incredibly humanized by the movie. Like, like the slow, deliberate pacing of this movie is about adding so much depth and complexity to that. And so I, I, I want to kind of like propose a sort of reading here, which mm-hmm. you might not agree with, which is like, essentially, a lot of this film is about the journey towards the possibility of a miracle. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and and so Tarkovsky was an was an Orthodox Christian, and a lot of his stuff deals with very religious themes, yeah. um, as did a lot of the other filmmakers that he really admired. And so, really, what is the room, if not the point at which kind of rationalist or or non-religious epistemologies kind of fail? And what is required is a sort of almost literalized Kierkegaardian leap of faith, right? There has to be this kind of like existential capacity within you to to cross the threshold and actually confront yourself as you truly are. And Stalker later says that like people have lost this capacity within them, right? Something about these people just would not allow them to do it and he doesn't know if he's going to keep taking people there anymore. Uh, so what do, you, what do you think about that? Does that kind of hold up, do you think? I love this. I think this is spot on. Uh, Stalker has this kind of monologue at the end when he's in bed and he's like, not physically sick, but he is emotionally sick. You know, he's he's sweating buckets and he's in great turmoil. And it's it's because exactly what you just mentioned Right. He, he recognizes that no one has the capacity for faith anymore. They can't enter the room. It's, it's not the room isn't bad because it's going to grant your deepest wish. And maybe that wish is something you're uncomfortable with. The, the room is bad because you would then have to face that. Like like that is the challenge that the room offers you. Is it is are you willing to know yourself? Are you willing to stand up to that? And, and that is a massive, you're absolutely right, a massive leap of faith that is that is dwindled, right? Positivism ha- has taken that, right? Now, instead of that, people people just tend to, like, accrete a bunch of, like, signifiers onto their personality. And then, and then like, you know, I keep bringing up this metaphor, but, like, we're living in an age where, like, the construction of the self is just becoming some kind of hermit crab and you're just constantly sticking junk to your shell, and then, and then just displaying that junk for the world to see, and then that's you, you know. But the 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 zone is challenging that. Yeah, you know. Do do you really want to? Do you really want to know who you are? You know, and and more more difficult. Can you? Can you do mm-hmm. that? Um, and you know, right at the end, the stalker seems to think that they can't. They can't do it. There's there's something missing here, and and I think that that's the darkest part of the movie for me because everyone around Stalker, besides perhaps his wife, is having this massive crisis of faith. The writer and the professor won't go in the room because they lack the faith required. They 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 can't take the test, and and in the end, it, it becomes so dark that it challenges the Stalker's faith himself. And I think that 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 for me is is a is a is like the darkest point in the movie where even he is now grappling with a crisis of faith. Yeah. Well, I think that means we should probably talk about the ending. Yes. So 
if if we read this in kind of fish fisherian terms, you have the eerie absences of the middle section, but then right at the end, something very weird happens. Um, I, what do you think of the ending? What do you think of the the very final shots of the film? Um, so the stalker has a young daughter. Um, and although we never see this one way or the other, it's intimated that she was born without legs um, or, or some other kind of disability that limits her mo- mobility, right? Um, and we we learned throughout the course of the film that all children of stalkers are this way. If you're a stalker and you have a kid, they're going to be born with some kind of disability. Um, we What we learned at the end of the movie is that she has like telekinetic powers you know she pushes some cups off of a table with her mind or at least that's what we're led to believe i am buying it i am not falling for the false reasoning that it's the vibrations of the train that did that no no what i think here is because this this ties us right back to the beginning of the movie because in the beginning of the movie um writer is is going off on this on this really jaded monologue about how there's like there's no, there's no telepathy. There's no UFOs. There's no ghosts. They're impossible. They don't exist. There's no God. It's it's this very dry kind of Soviet atheistic positivism that he's doing. Yeah, um, he's it, like he's like e- yeah. existence is boring. Is what he says. It's so boring. Yeah. Existence. Everything is just boring now. And 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 to 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 hammer that scene home, he's like doing that monologue to a babe. He's he's like picked up some really attractive <laughs> woman, and he's like everything just sucks now. There's no mystery anymore. He's trying to like do the writer's mystique thing. Uh, big cringe. <laughs> oh yeah. But um, but no. The the end of the scene is just like he's wrong. The, the the problem wasn't that these things don't exist. The problem is that he doesn't have faith. And 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 the very final end of the scene is like. Uh, the the end of the film is like what might humans become like what, mm-hmm. what does that what does that look like if, if if to kind of know oneself uh if to kind of like you know you can read this in very classic um you know like joseph campbell or even Jung, Jung's idea of like going out and to discover oneself mm-hmm. um like what might humans become if we did truly know ourselves yeah. And I think this en- ending on this kind of almost post-human, human, human, a post-human human, um, you know, if we are all products of the zone, yes, you know, there is something that might change about what we take to be core and essential to our subjectivity, but also we might become something completely different. You know, there might be a new new kind of human consciousness struggling to emerge. Oh, absolutely. And like... You know, like, you know where my mind is at this entire episode. And when I'm watching this ending, I'm like, the stalker's daughter has has fully reintegrated her, like, self as an object in connection with nature, including the zone, right? She awakens to this power because she sees herself not as an entity that is separate from the cup right not as an entity that is separate from the room or the zone she she connects that she is part of all of this that the actions in these things inform herself and what she does in turn informs them right she she kind of comes about to the full interconnectedness of objects and you know just like the scene in the matrix right there is no spoon you know although i guess i guess that's some like ultra monism or something but like 
that that kind of like recognition right that the human is the natural that those distinctions aren't nearly as massive as the kind of ideological apparatus of culture makes them out to be awakens her to literal superpowers you know but the superpowers of course is a little metaphoric here but yeah yeah like the, this idea of like the integration of self with the world at its utmost point um raises some super interesting questions right as the film ends um and speaking of questions do you, should we pose some questions to to the audience that was a flawless transition that was that was our first good transition how'd you do that <laughs> uh yeah yeah shall i shall i jump on in yeah 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 scientists of all ages who what brilliant just brilliant all right, my question's for you, dear listener. Question the first. Um, related to a few things we've been talking over the last couple episodes, the stalker is a kind of service industry worker. He's a freelancer, a tour guide, a member of the precariat. How do we read his daily encounters with the preternatural with our own experiences as, I guess, real-world stalkers? And my second question. The writer comments, The world is so boring. There's no telepathy, no flying saucers, no ghosts. They can't exist. It's hard not to read his inaction and melancholia as an extension of his positivistic worldview. Are there examples from your own life where applying, let's say, Bogos alien phenomenology can spare you from the writer's disenchanted materialism? Yeah. Yes. Yes to those. Um, <laughs> a, a couple of slightly different questions. Um, it, it, if meaning is uh something that is bound up within larger historical processes um have any of you had texts or films or pieces of media that have taken on new meanings for you based on his based on history something that meant something to you at one stage and then means something to you later something new later uh because of changes to the history that we've lived through and uh a second question what would you what would you find in the room thank you thank you everyone for watch uh, for watching for listening to the show um <laughs> hopefully hopefully this has been this has been useful and interesting and yet more proof that every single film is a horror movie we hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse until next week stay spooky